put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The word of the Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you. You are our Redeemer. You are our Deliverer. Everything we have is dependent upon you. Every good thing in our life is not from us. It is by the grace of God. His common grace that sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And His special saving grace that He has lavished on all those who are united to Him by faith. Father, we assemble this morning because we know we need You. We need Christ. Christ, our great champion, our great deliverer who has conquered our greatest enemy, which is sin, that has held us captive in death. But it is Christ who came while we were yet sinners. And by His perfect righteousness, and his sacrificial atoning death defeated our greatest enemy. And Father, we confess that we know that you have deposited your spirit into us and given us the ability to put to death that which is in us, the sinful passions and lusts of our heart, to tear down the barriers that divide. Father, and that we put on Christ that we clothe ourselves in His righteousness and seek after Him to be able to starve the passions of the flesh that remain alive in us, though we are no longer captive to them, and be, and be able to feed the fire of the Spirit of Christ that dwells in us, that we will become more like Jesus in thoughts, in word, and in heart. Father, inhabit the praises of your people. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and voices to proclaim your name. May we see you anew and afresh in this text that is often glossed over or is familiar. I pray that it would be uh, new and fresh in our lives, that we would see you better that our hearts would be filled with thankfulness and that our feet would be quick to go and bring the good news to all people, to our family, to our coworkers, to our friends and neighbors, to the uttermost parts of the earth. We may we be faithful to make disciples of all nations, that they may be satisfied in you and you may be glorified in us, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. If you're not already there, if you would turn to your Bibles in Colossians chapter 3, we'll actually just be looking at verses 12 through 15. I had thought I would uh, try to do 12 through 17, but that there is just too much richness 
You could go verse by verse, honestly, through this section and preach uh, multiple sermons, um, but we will try the best we can in the time that the Lord has given us this morning. On June 6th in 1944, an allied force of nearly 150,000 troops, 5,000 ships, and 800 aircraft assaulted 50 miles of the French coast on Normandy coastline. That day and those days that followed, more than 4,000 troops gave their lives to successfully get a foothold in France to beat off Hitler's coastal army and his defenses in France. The Allies eventually took the beaches, and it gave them a foothold, and it gave them the victory, though the fighting was far from over. Nine long, grueling months ensued as Hitler's army grew more desperate and fought more to the death until they were finally driven to unconditional surrender on May 8, 1945, which we affectionately call VE Day in Europe. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, we are living between D-Day when our, the troops stormed Normandy and VE Day when Hitler um, surrendered. There will be a day because of the victory that Christ accomplished on the cross that he will come and vanquish sin and bring his people to himself, uh, a kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. In light of this, Colossians chapter 3 tells us this, tells us how to live, how to be alive in Christ. And as you can see, the cat's out of the bag with my big idea, those who are alive in Christ live like Christ. Those who are alive in Christ live like Christ. We know that eternal life has begun. It's become now those who are united to Christ by faith have the life of Christ, but it is not yet the fullness of the life that we will have when we are in heaven. In eternity with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all of those who have trusted in the promises of God. We know that sin has been defeated, but we also know from experience and from the deep recesses of a heart that sin is not dead. Though, like Hitler's forces, it fights desperately to try to win the battle. But we know, as Luther says, a mighty fortress is our God, and the battle is his. One little word will fell Satan and his minions. So as we await VE Day, the victory of Christ, we are called to live uh, for Christ. To those who are alive in Christ are called to live for Christ. We're called to put to death, as we saw last week, the, the deeds of the flesh, the lusts, the passions, the barriers that divide us, and we're called to live for Christ. And how do we do that? How do we live like Christ today, how we will live for eternity uh, in, after V-Day is accomplished when God's kingdom is on earth as it is in heaven? Well, the three ways we do that is to, one, put on Christ's character. Put on Christ's character. Verse 12, put on Christ's unity. Verses 13 and 14, and put on Christ's peace. 
We are called to put to death the lusts and the passion and the bears of the flesh, and we're called to put on Christ's character, Christ's unity, and Christ's peace. So while we turn our attention to verse 12 as we put on Christ's character, I must admit that uh, um, when I go and I watch videos online, I am a sucker for a good feel-good video. And one of the videos that gets me every time are the videos of people that are um, getting cochlear implants turned on for the first time. People that are shrouded in silence, unable to hear those around the noise and the animals and the birds and music, even the voice of their parents, the voice of their children. And at the flick of a switch, they can hear. Now, at first, the voices are squeaky or low or rumbly, and it's kind of frightening what they're able to hear, a whole world they have never seen. But after a while, the um, brain begins to understand what it's hearing from the ears for the first time. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, if you have been born again, if you've been regenerated, and you have the life of Christ, which has been imparted by the Holy Spirit, you, like those who are non-hearing and now are hearing, have experienced that same phenomenon. Because those who are in Christ have experienced a new spiritual sense, the sixth sense, if you will. I believe somebody already put that on a movie, but I'm going to tag that on the new spiritual sense that we have. This spiritual sense that John Newton in his great hymn, Amazing Grace, put to voice, he said, I once was blind, but what? But now I see. Lewis, in his conversion, said, I got on a bus and I was blind to the things of Christ. 45 minutes on a bus ride to the zoo, I got off and I could see. I was blind, but now I see. This new spiritual sense that people have. And as believers, we have this new spiritual sense. That's why each week I pray for eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that love. Because we need this new spiritual sense that God imparts through the Holy Spirit when we are born again. And this new spiritual sense flows from the character of Christ. This character that gives us a new identity and imparts a new attitude that we have. Notice verse 12, this new identity that the character of Christ has put and imparted in, in his people. Put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved. If you are in Christ, you are no longer what you once were, was, were, something like that. We sang, I am no longer a slave to fear, and we sang what? I am a child of God. You once were lost, but now were found. You were slaves, and you're free. You were enemies, and you were now friends. You were orphans, and now you are sons and daughters. What has changed? This, why have you received this new spiritual sin? I want you to notice, it is the electing grace of God. Notice in our text, put then as God's chosen one, as electoi, God's chosen one. Grace is the foundation of a believer's new identity. Grace is God's goodness towards people who deserve only punishment. Grace is undeserved and grace is unearned. And quite frankly, we don't want it when we are a part 
of the world. If you belong to Jesus, it's because while you were still a sinner, God chose to show you his grace by making you his own through the blood of Jesus Christ. He chose to redeem you from sin and adopt you into his family. This electing grace has had an impact because notice what it's done. It gives you a new title, a new understanding. Holy and beloved. Holy means separated. We have been separated unto the Lord. We have been brought away from the world to the bondage and captivity of the kingdom of this world. And we have been, by the blood of Christ, brought into relationship with God. And we're beloved. We are loved by our Heavenly Father who loves us. And in other words, grace has set apart for relation, us apart from relationship with God and service unto God. This is the very thing in Awana. This year we're teaching the New City Catechism to children. And the first question of the New City Catechism, ready kids? What is our only hope in life and death? We are not our own, but belong in body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now that's, a lo that's the longer, that's the adult version. But we belong to Jesus. We are his children. We are loved. The electing love of God has redeemed us from the ownership of the world and united us into the family of Christ, to the body of Christ. We have been entrusted by God to the task of bringing the gospel, the good news of great joy into all the world and to make disciples of every tribe and tongue and nation. Ocean Park, our identity is rooted in the fact that there was nothing to draw God to us, a wretch like me. It was nothing in me, but everything in God. Because God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It wasn't Abraham's righteousness that drew God to him. It was the grace of God. And Abraham believed God's promises, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he followed God. And that pattern has continued, we see, through, to this day. We believe the promises of God that when Christ died, he took my punishment, and when he rose, he gives us his righteousness. And those who are united by faith, responding to work of God, are called the children of God. This new spiritual sense causes us to see the world and hear the world, even taste the world differently. We no longer live to please ourselves, but we live to make much of Christ, of who he is and what he has done. We see another song we've been trying to sing, I've been working on it in my lack of musical ability, See what kind of love the Father has given to us. This, behold what manner of love we sing, what? That we should be called the children of God. It's mind-blowing. And that is what we are. We, do not, we belong to God not of anything in us, but because of everything in God. We realize this, our identity imparts us a new attitude. Because of what God has done, that's the foundation, we respond to that joyfully, gladly, we want, because we've been freed from sin, we want to live to glorify the one who has freed us. Notice the attitude of the, that, in, that character of Christ imparts with us. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. The character of Christ that we're called to put on is not a prideful, 
inward-looking, but instead a humble, outward-looking. He uses five words, five words to describe the character of Christ. The first one is compassionate hearts. And I was talking to Scott earlier, and um, on Friday, going over the sermon, I was getting my inputs from him, make sure it was theologically sound, and I said I had a lot of fun this week um, going through word studies of the text. And, and so as we dive deep into these five words, I pray that we will see the beauty of this, of this heart and character of God. Compassionate hearts is a deep sensitivity to the needs of others. The word is trans, um, that is, we use for compassion is actually a synonym for mercy. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. These are the same Greek words that are tied here. The character of Christ is a heartfelt compassion that we have for one another. It's not, a cold and ins- and it's not cold and insensitive to the plight of the weak or the poor or the needy, because it remembers that without the electing love of God, we were poor, we were weak, and we were needy. The second characteristic of the character of God is kindness. It is a Christ-like attitude towards those outside of us, towards others. It extends the goodness of God to others. But this goodness is not natural to us. This is not something that we draw from ourselves, but it is supernaturally imparted by the Holy Spirit of God who lives in us. Check this out. To show that goodness is not in us, uh, uh, I'm sorry, kindness is not in us. All have turned aside. Together they have become what? Worthless. No one does good. Same Greek word. No one does, you could say, kindness. If you're translating your own copy of your Bible, you could translate it the word kindness. But notice this. When the, and, and some of our TNT folks should know this first. We've been working on it the last few weeks. But when the goodness... When the kindness of our God came, uh, our Savior appeared. He saved us, not because of works done by us, not because of anything in us, uh, in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Brothers and sisters, the character of Christ extends, uh, excuse me, character of Christ extends goodness towards others. It is a genuine sensitivity to the feelings and the needs and the desires of others. We're called to be compassionate, we're called to be kind, we're called to humility. Christ, uh, humility is Christ-like attitude towards yourself. It is not self-centered, me-first mentality that demands honor and significance, but it is an attitude that counts others more valuable, more insignificant than ourselves. And we get this from the pattern of Christ himself. Complete my joy, Paul writes in the book of Philippians, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. This is humility in action. Where do we get of it? Let each of us look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourself, which was yours in Christ Jesus. The character of Christ does not demand its own rights, its own ways, and its own desires, but it seeks to serve others whether it is noticed or not. 
Scott, will you go back there and turn the air conditioning on to 72? I am on fire right now. Okay? Literally on fire right now. I am, yeah, so. Not only compassionate hearts, uh, the character of God, and kindness and humility, but meekness. Meekness is kindness, the love of God to others in acting, in practice. Meekness deals with others in such a way that it preserves and it protects. Meekness is willing to make allowances for others and treat others with dignity and respect. Meekness is kindness that flows from a life that is connected to Christ. In our responsive reading this morning, we went over the fruit of the Spirit. And again, notice our words, our Greek words are the same. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness. You could also, I think some of the, maybe the King James says meekness, but self-control against those things, there is no law. The character of Christ is not rude, is not arrogant, is not heavy-handed in how it deals with others, but it recognizes the weakness, the faults, the failings, and the foibles of others and carefully works to protect them, to strengthen them, and to tenderly correct them. We are called by the character of Christ to put on compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness. And the final word is patience. If meekness is kindness in action, patience is humility in action. Patience does not exact revenge, lash out in anger, or demand its own way when we don't receive the treatment or the honor that we desire. Instead, they follow the pattern of Jesus and trust God. An impatient person is not someone with a short temper. An impatient person is somebody who has pride that's out of control. Because they say, rather than trusting God, I will enact my revenge on people who don't treat me the way I want to be treated. Oh, you're going to say that? Let me tell you something about yourself. That's called, humi- that's called pride in action. Patience is humility in action. And that example is only found in Christ, the great need. Thank you, Scott. For this is what you have been called because Christ suffered for you, what? Leaving you an example. That's not a Greek word, but that's, I wanted to emphasize that. So you might follow in Jesus' steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found on his mouth. When he was reviled, when he wasn't treated with the honor and dignity that he that he deserved as Lord of creation, what did he do? He did not revile in return. Oh, you want to whip me? I got a a ton of angels that can come down and, and get you. He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. The character of Christ in patience, endures ill treatment and the lack of honor because they trust God to provide what we need, when we need, and the amount that we need. Ocean Park, we can only by clothing ourselves with the character of Christ to properly see in um, response to what God has done, to properly see ourselves and properly see others correctly, we will, without Christ's character, declare ourselves the master of our fate and the captain of our soul, when in the reality, it is Jesus Christ who is that. 
When we, have the, we do not have the character of Christ, we embrace the mantra, to thy own self be true, rather than worrying and loving our neighbor. When we don't have the character of Christ, we pursue the lusts and the passions and the desires of our heart first. And maybe, if it benefits you, I'll help you out. Yet when the Spirit of God causes a person to be born again, he imparts the Spirit of God who enables you to put off the flesh, its passions and its lust, and put on the character of Christ. When this happens, your mindset changes. It's like that implant that allows you to hear and the, those special glasses that let people see color for the first time. It changes everything. We begin to treat others with meekness that is motivated by kindness and rather than indifference and hard-heartedness. When we put on the character of Christ, we react to others with hum humble kindness rather than arrogant anger or vengeful wrath. Brothers and sisters, those who are alive in Christ live like Christ by putting on Christ's character. Paul continues, and he says, we put on Christ's character, but we also put on Christ's unity. We live in a fractured world. Go turn on the news. Go look on the internet. We live in a world that is suffering under the, the tyranny of incredible tribalism. We divide people on the base of social, political, religious, sexual, and ethnic identities. We demonize, we criminalize, we marginalize anyone who doesn't subscribe to our methodology, our ideology, or our feelings. At any moment, and at any time, without warning, you will be cut off, and your wrath, their wrath will be poured out on you if you do not pander to the lusts of the flesh and the passions of their hearts. The world recoils at the unity that Christ calls his body to be. But let me tell you this, unity does not mean uniformity. The body of Christ, the church, is composed of a vast conglomeration of ethnicities, of personalities, of socioeconomic backgrounds. And this is where the Holy Spirit of God enables God's chosen ones who are holy and beloved to begin to put to death self-seeking, self-righteous, self-preserving sinful passions that have corrupted God's world in relationships and to put on the character of Christ so that we can also live in the unity that Christ calls us to do. But how do we put on the unity of Christ when we are so naturally against unity and we know so naturally are turned inward and towards tribalism? Paul gives us three ways, by bearing with one another, forgiving one another, and loving one another. Notice uh, he begins in verse 13, uh, bearing one another. Ocean Park, you are going to encounter members of the body of Christ, genuine uh, Christians who are saved by the grace of God who irritate you. Amen? Don't say amen. You're going to find people that make you mad. They're going to find people that honestly are just plain annoying. God love them. 
They will make silly choices, and they will say silly things, and they will act in silly ways. And this neither surprises God nor thwarts his call to unity. However, rather than the impulse of the world, when we find people who don't make us happy or easy to get along with or are nice to be around or attractive, what does the world do? They shun them, they avoid them, and they disassociate with them. Oh, here they're coming, I'm going this way. And we don't want to be around people that irritate us or don't make us happy or are nice and attractive and pretty. We want to be around those people. But we, um, it, Paul tells us to be able to bear with one another. Brothers and sisters, the unity of Christ is experienced when we choose to love one another patiently, even when it's difficult to love. When Jesus told his disciples in the upper room, they will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love him, they, you love each other. He wasn't just talking about beautiful Christians and nice Christians and hipster Christians and easy-to-love Christians. Paul was telling them about the people that were unattractive and cantankerous and difficult to love. The disciples themselves were a ragtag bunch of band of misfits who often said the dumbest thing at the most inopportune time. What, yet what did Jesus do? All right, took a deep breath, Peter. Jesus patiently endured their half-witted, impulsive behaviors time and time again as he does ours. We all know too well. People let us down, and people say silly things and do silly things. But if we love the gospel, and we are seeking to put on the character of Christ, we seek to give them grace. Ocean Park, we must do the same thing that Christ did. The church should be the place where, those, where we deliberately choose to devote ourselves to patiently enduring um, and patiently loving difficult people and times and attitudes, even though their foibles and their weakness and the faults that they have are well known to us. Many churches, people will stay for six months to a year, and when things don't go their way, or somebody says something silly, see ya, I'm out of here, and they go to the next church, and they never demonstrate the love of Christ to their neighbor and demonstrate it to the world because they never bear with one another. Not only does he call to bear with one another because of the character of Christ that gives us, but he also calls us to put on unity by forgiving one another. Notice he says, if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving one another as what? The standard, as the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. You've probably heard it said, or I've added on to it, when two or more are gathered in Christ's name, he is there with them. And there's also conflict. Given time, conflict will arrive. Paul is writing knowing that the church is not a utopia, a brave new world where everybody says the right thing and acts the same way and acts like the Stepford Wives or something like that. The church is a place where people say sometimes mean things and they do hurtful, thoughtless things and they fail to treat others the way they want to be treated. Why? Because they're sinners. Why do you do it? Why do I do it? Because we're sinners. And we say stupid things, and we do stupid things, because we're sinners. If you, convict, uh, if you commit yourself to investing any time in a biblical community, you will be sinned against, and you will sin against others. 
Remember that next time I, I don't meet your expectations or I disappoint you. Look at the New Testament. Peter openly sinned against the new Gentile believers. The church in Corinth was a hot mess. Go read it. It wasn't pretty. Never name your church after Corinth. That's not a, an honor. In Acts chapter 6, it was the Greek widows who were being overlooked in the distribution of food. But I promise you, when sin arises and conflict happens within the church, we do not have the right to pour out our wrath and demand our own way or slander those who have sinned against us. Paul calls us and Jesus calls us to do what? Forgive. Not a self-righteous forgiveness that says, that, and this, there's a type of forgiveness, and I don't, it's not biblical, but it's a forgiveness that creates inequality and inferiority and shame. Sin, forgiveness that says, I realize you don't do, know any better, but I'm going to forgive you anyway. Do you see what that's happening there? That's just pride talking and pushing that person down and make, marginalizing them. That's just pride. That's not forgiveness. There's forgiveness that's a superficial forgiveness that allows the bitterness and the wrong to fester below the surface like a wound that superficially uh, heals, but there's a nasty pus and festering below that will eventually come out. This forgiveness says, I'll gloss over your faults right now, but in the future when I, uh, it's convenient to me, I will use this against you. That's not forgiveness. That's not the character of Christ. To forgive is to extend grace to those who have hurt you, to those who have offended you or sinned against you. The Greek word is, is a little lex, lexical tidbit here, is charisomai, or charisomai. And remember, uh, charis kiv, her name is the Greek word for what? Grace. Now, gr forgiveness is grace in action. Um, we are called to give grace to one another when we're wronged, when we're offended, and when people do silly things and say silly things. Notice Romans 8, 32 says this. He, oh, that's, there's Carissa Mai. Romans says this. He who did not spare his own son but gave him us for us all. How, um, how will he not also graciously, there's our word, give us all things? The standard of forgiveness is Jesus Christ, who had every right to demand honor and praise and reverence as Lord of creation, as creator himself. Yet instead of demanding his rights, what did he do? He laid down those rights and he laid down his life to redeem his people. Spurgeon says it this way. He says, Jesus was much tried, but he was never provoked to wrath. Both by friends and by enemies, he was made to suffer, yet he neither accused the one nor uh, the other of his great, uh, to his great father. He never reviled those who reviled him, but patiently yielded to their malice, giving his back to the smiters and his cheek to those who plucked off the hair. His disciples he gently rebuked, but never spoke, spake to them in anger. A life of forgiveness was crowned by his dying prayer for his persecutors. Father, forgive them, for they know not 
what they do. Forgiveness means that you give grace, not revenge. To those who have wronged you, hurt you, and disrespected you, as God's chosen who are holy and beloved, we are called to deliberately seek unity, not personal vindication. Why? Because that is what we receive from Christ. Though our sin was infinitely greater than anything, any one wrong will be perpetuated against you. We sang the song this morning, His Mercy is More. It was actually based on a sermon by John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace. What love could remember no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, he knows it, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. He doesn't go, well, love keeps no record of wrong. Jesus doesn't knows it all and doesn't count it all. Thrown into a sea, not without bo a bottom or shore. Why is that significant? Nobody can get a submarine and go to the bottom of the ocean of God's grace and find your sin, and it will never show up on a shore because it goes into a, a sea of without bottom or sh uh, shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. This is the gospel. We are rebellious sinners who have committed cosmic treason against the almighty God, and we have been given the privilege to drink the sweet, refreshing, soul-satisfying waters of God's grace and mercy through the forgiveness we have because of the cross. Ocean Park, how can you deny forgiveness to those who need it as desperately as you do? How can you refuse to forgive somebody in the body of Christ who Christ himself has forgiven? That hurts, doesn't it? This week, I'm studying the text, studying about grace and forgiveness. I leave my office. It takes two minutes to go home, and what do I do? I yell at my wife, and I'm graceless and unforgiving. I drive out, and I say, you are a schmuck. You write that down. Your pastor is a schmuck. And I need the grace and the mercy and the character of God every day. Ocean Park, conflict is inevitable. People will sin against you, even true, genuine, faithful Christians. The question is not if conflict comes, but it's whether, when conflicts will come and how you will handle it. Will you put on the character of Christ and seek and to put on the unity of Christ, or will you seek the flesh that craves revenge? I pray that we, myself, you, and as a body, that we will seek the character of Christ and the unity of Christ. And then we're called to love one another. Above all else, Paul says, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The final element of the preserving unity of Christ is, the, is, the, um, is love. This self-sacrificial love of God that seeks the good of my neighbor. We know the verse oh so well. Love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy or both, is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Sound familiar? Bearing one another, forgiving one another, just as Christ forgave you. Without love, 
The other virtues are vanity. We can have great wisdom. We can have uh, great forgiveness as as the world thinks it, but if we don't have love, those virtues are meaningless, they're empty. We cannot truly have compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience without the true, genuine love that is imparted by Christ. Love maintains the balance, but brings all the other virtues to perfection. But there's even more. I think really the essence of the big chapter, the context is here. Love binds a community of believers together in one body where peace reigns. Love enables Greek and Jew to come together as one. Notice previous in chapter 3. Love enables barbarians and Scythians, slave and free, to be united together in community. Love enables black and white, Asian, Latino, and Middle Eastern to live in harmony as brothers and sisters of Christ, putting down those walls that, that have brought barriers between ethnicities. Love enables men and women, educated and uneducated, famous and anonymous, to unite together in mutual love and honor and respect. Love enables difficult people and quirky people and surly people and bubbly people and introverted people and extroverted people to live together in harmony in the peace that Christ gives. Are you putting on Christ's unity by loving your fellow members of Christ's body unconditionally? Or is your love conditional how a person looks, acts, or treats you? Are you breaking down the barriers of ethnicity and tradition and social status and the culture that you may, uh, that, so we might enjoy the joy of living together as the body of Christ that transcends uh, tribe and tongue and nation? It is my prayer that Ocean Park put on Christ's character so we, we, we may be able to put on Christ's unity a unity that is preserved and maintained among God's chosen, holy, beloved people as we bear one another, forgive one another, and love one another. Ocean Park, those who are alive in Christ live like Christ by putting on his unity. And in briefly closing, the third thing that uh, Paul calls us to do is to put on the peace of Christ. The first recorded words of Jesus were Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of Christ is not a kingdom that is conquered by spear or sword, but a kingdom that begins in the inner transformation of the heart, where the Spirit of God accomplishes His work in bringing new life, and because of that life flows peace and flows thankfulness. A kingdom where the world, where the lion lays with the lamb, where the leopard with the baby goat, with the calf and the yearling are safe around the wolf. And most of all, the people of God, every tribe and every tongue and every nation, dwell together in the peace and the thankfulness that comes from trusting the reign of our King Jesus. Notice, briefly the harmony peaceful harmony and let the peace of christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body when you see the word peace here it's not an inward personal peace that comes from trusting christ jesus but an actually it's a peace that lives in harmony with the body of christ peace between diverse people from all walks of life 
every personality type, every ethnicity, every cultural background, and every life experience living in peace together because the gospel has transformed you. Peace, again, is not the absence of conflict. We think if we can just avoid conflict and go hide until they leave or not die, we think we can have peace. Peace is not the absence of conflict, it's the presence of Christ. Peace is when sin, people sin against us or hurt our feelings or don't do what we think they should do or don't treat one another the way they want to be treated. Peace is the gospel in action, applying the character of Christ to preserve the unity of Christ with the output with the peace of Christ. The peace of Christ is the harmony of the gospel. And the peace of Christ brings forth, forth grateful hearts. Notice, and simply, and be thankful. In the twilight of his life, John Newton, a former slave trader who was redeemed by God's amazing grace, famously confessed this. Although my memory is fading, I remember two things quite clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Brothers and sisters, friends, visitors, when all is said and done, a genuine Christian realizes that anything good in them is because of God's amazing grace. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. A triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit chose to redeem a sinful, rebellious people for himself. He lavished these people with his grace. He caused them to be born again, and he set them free from the bondage of sin. A people who now can know him and love him and love one another. Gratitude. When we realize the truth of the gospel, gratitude is the only response for those who know the truth of the gospel. When you put on the character of Christ, when you seek the unity of Christ, you will enjoy the sweetness of the peace of Christ with the people of God. Therefore, Paul calls us that those who are alive in Christ are to live like Christ. We are living in a day between D-Day that Christ accomplished on the cross. Like the D-Day of some 65 years ago, where 4,000 troops paid the ultimate price, Christ paid the infinite price by his life. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds you were healed. Because of the victory, because of the D-Day of Calvary, we have confidence in the coming V-E Day or V-J Day that God will dwell with his people. Because of that, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more nor mourning or crying or pain, for the old has passed away. Because of the V-Day victory at the cross, we have accomplished a new life in Christ where we fight the flesh to put it to death, and there are a day when our great captain will come and wipe them away. And until that day, we put off the flesh, we put on the character of Christ, we put on the unity of Christ, and we put on the, uh, the, the, the peace of Christ because we are waiting for Christ to come 
and those who are alive in Christ live like Christ until that day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus.